podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. good boys and girls welcome to the two-footed podcast today is wednesday the 15th of september we're brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider it's a virtual privacy network which allows you to go online change your location access things like american netflix or anything that you might be geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe check out libertyshield.com and use the code eplvpn to get 20 percent off at checkout we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, boys and girls, how are we all today? Hope you're all doing well. Champions League is underway, which is always exciting. And last night we had eight games to get us going. First one we'll talk about Sevilla versus Red Bull Salzburg. An absolutely wild first half in this one. Four penalties given, three of them to Salzburg. The game ends 1-1. Kareem Adeyemi absolutely torched the, the Sevilla backline over and over again. He won three penalties inside half an hour, missed the first one himself. Sukic took the second one and scored it, and then Salzburg missed the third one. Sevilla got a penalty of their own on 42 minutes. Ivan Rakitic scored it. Into the second half, Yusuf and Naziri gets sent off after about five minutes of the second half. And the game kind of just drifted from there and played out as a 1-1 draw. Both teams seemed pretty happy with the point. Salzburg should have been home and clear after half an hour. They should have scored those three penalties. They had one or two other good chances. They dominated possession in the game. They had the best opportunities in the game. And this is against a good Sevilla team. This isn't some random group of players. This is... A very, very strong Sevilla team. Jules Kunde and Diego Carlos at centre-back. John Jordan, Fernando Regis and Ivan Rakitic in midfield. Suso and Naziro and Papu Gomez up front. This is a strong team. But Salzburg just produce really exciting players. And I like the look of Aronson who played as a 10 in a diamond yesterday. He can play right side midfield, right back, central midfield. Very, very exciting player and another one that the USA is going to have at their disposal. They've got a really exciting group of midfielders and attackers and fullbacks, to be fair, when you think of Serginho Dest and Anthony Robinson. If they can sort out their central defence, the USA is going to be pretty good in a couple of years. Adiemi and Sesco up front, movement, pace, just... Really, really impressive. Really impressive how they continue to find players and develop them. I like the look of uh, Salah, the young French centre-back who came from Lyon. Max Wober, who has been around a little bit. He was at Sevilla for a time. He was at Ajax. He's had a couple of 10 million plus moves. Uh, he played central defence. He's been linked to a couple of Premier League teams as well. I'm not sure he's a Premier League calibre defender. 
Not if you're uh, a team with European ambitions, but he is decent and he's good on the ball. So maybe one to keep an eye out for. He he might end up at, you could see him at a Brighton. You could see him playing middle of, of Graham Potter's three. Um, Lille nil, Wolfsburg nil. Doesn't sound like it was the most entertaining of games. John Brooks sent off for Wolfsburg in that one. Wolfsburg had two shots and none on target in the whole game, which will tell you where their minds were. Uh, Villarreal 2, Atalanta 2. Caught the highlights of this again. Very, very entertaining game. Remu Freuler put Atalanta 1-up. Trigueras made it 1-1. Arnett Danjuma, formerly of Bournemouth, made it 2-1 before Robin Golson's made it 2-2. Uh, Francis Cocky, formerly of Arsenal, uh, sent off on 84. Very, very even game. Two good teams. And two teams that are going to cause Manchester United problems. And we'll come back to United. Uh, and we'll come back to Chelsea. Malbo nil. Juventus 3. Juventus ba- bouncing back after some poor form in the league. Alexandra won 23. Dybala with a 45th minute penalty. And then Alvaro Morata in stoppage time at the end of the first half. Making it 3. Juve without Chiesa in the team. But looking a lot more like a Max Allegri team last night. Which was good to see. Um, Dinamo Kiev and, and Benfica played out a fairly dour nil-nil draw. Benfica the better team, but Kiev looked dangerous at times from what I saw. Um, Bayern Munich three, Barcelona nil. Now this scoreline does not in any way represent the game that we watched. Not in any single way. This was a more dominant performance by Bayern than the 8-2 walloping they gave Barca in the Champions League a couple of years back. This was this was almost bullying. Uh, Muller put them one up after 34, Lewandowski on 56 and 85, making it three. Very, very impressive performance from a really, really strong Bayern Munich team. A team that has quality absolutely everywhere. And in Robert Lewandowski, they have the best number nine in the world right now. And the, and not just right now, but for the last couple of years, Lewandowski has been the best number nine in the world. And right now, he has scored in 18 consecutive games. And in that 18-game run, he scored 29 goals. He scored 41 league goals in his last 28 starts. These numbers match up perfectly with the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, who Gary Neville wants you to believe is the best player of all time. He was robbed of his Ballon d'Or in 2020. How he wasn't given it, I don't know. I think he could get it this year to make up for not getting it last year. But this was just one-sided dominance from Bayern. 17 shots, 7 on target. Barca had 5, none on target. Barca barely managed to get the ball into the Bayern half. They would lots of possession in their own defensive third. Eric Garcia, Gerard Piquet and Sergio Busquets played lovely triangles. They got absolutely nowhere. And Bayern let them have the ball. And waited for it to go to somebody you know, with, with less ability on the ball than those three. And then when they got the ball... They picked on those three. They picked on Busquets' lack of pace. PK being well past his best. 
and Garcia just not being a very good defender. It was interesting to see Ronald Koeman come out earlier in the week and say that Barcelona has a future because of him. It's a bizarre statement. But when you look at their passing maps and things under Koeman, the plan last year, as it had been for a couple of years at Barca since the team started to decline, was give it to Messi and hope he can do something. And generally he would. Messi is now gone. So you think, okay, the plan will now be, let's give it to Memphis. No. The plan for Barcelona now is give it to Jordi Alba and hope that he can do something. Now, Jordi Alba is a very good player. He's a very, very good player. But he's a left-back. And he's not a left-back with, say, a Trent Alexander-Arnold type of passing range or versatility to his game. He's an up-and-down-the-flank left-back. You don't want to run your team through him. You really don't. And when you're Barcelona, it's unacceptable to run your team through him. You look at that Barca team, and it's not like it's dreadful. Ter Stegen and goal. Yes, he had a down season last year. He's still one of the five best goalkeepers on the planet. Ronald Arreo is a really good young centre-back. Pique is past his best, but he's still Pique. So he still reads the game and understands the game very, very well. He can still manage his way through games. Garcia is a weak point. Busquets never had pace, has lost whatever tiny bit he did have, but still reads the game brilliantly. His positional sense is the best I've ever seen. He can dictate and dominate a game on and off the ball like no one we've seen. Sergi Roberto and Jordi Alba as wing-backs. I mean, they're both good players. Central midfield, Frankie de Jong and Pedri. How are you not progressing the ball when you've got Frankie de Jong and Pedri? How are they not the two that you're giving the ball to non-stop? Frankie de Jong might be the most all the most rounded midfield player in the game right now. And Pedri is probably the most talented young playmaker playing football at the moment. Memphis is an excellent player. Super versatile attacker. Can play wide, can play central, can play in any shape, any system. But then you have the real... I don't want to disparage him because it's not his fault, but Luke de Jong does not belong at Barcelona and certainly should not be starting for them in the Champions League game. You can't have Luke de Jong in your, in your team. You're Barcelona. This guy was a sub at Sevilla and he's starting for you in the Champions League. How is this what you've become? And you look at the bench and there's like plenty of talent there. Sergio Dest, very talented young right back. Ricky Puig, really talented young midfielder. Yusuf Demir, super talented young Austrian forward that they brought in on loan with an option to buy in the summer. Neto, the backup goalkeeper, whatever. Clement Langley, who has been first choice for years. Now, I don't think he's all that good, but he's certainly better than Eric Garcia. Phil Coutinho, he paid $146 million for him. $146 million. He's sitting on your bench. I know he hasn't performed, but dear Lord, he's better than Luke de Jong. Oscar Mangueza, really talented young centre-back again, should have started over Garcia. Samuel Umtiti, the best centre-back at the club by a country mile, has been for years. Sitting on the bench so he can get booed for not wanting to take a pay cut. Inaki Pena, 
Nicholas Gonzalez, Gavian, Alejandro Balde, Martinez, all young players, all very bright and promising players. But like, how is Luke de Jong starting for Barcelona in a Champions League match? And how are you going out there and playing a 3-1-4-2 with no real pace against Bayern Munich? Leroy Sané tore them apart. Muller was Muller, did all the Muller things, really intelligent, great movement, found pockets of space, linked the play, disappeared, reappeared where no defenders happened to be. He's just, the guy's a magician, the way he can just be in front of a defender. The defender's looking straight at him, and with the defender not noticing, Muller's four yards behind him and in on goal. Such a strange player, but incredible to watch. Goretzka and Kimmich ran the midfield, but De Jong and Pedri weren't given the chance to really compete with them. Bayern played a really slow central defensive pairing. Nupa Meccano's got good straight line speed, but the guy can't turn. And it takes him 10 yards to get moving properly. A little bit like Ozan Quebec was at Liverpool last year. Nicolas Sula is maybe the slowest centre-back in Europe. And Barca met that by playing Luke de Jong, who's got no pace at all. Bayern were defending the halfway line. Any kind of pace in behind, and Barca could have at least had a chance. At least gotten a shot on target. Like, I know he's only 18, but Yusuf Demir would have been far better as a starter in this game than Luke de Jong. Far better as a starter. Bizarre decisions from Koeman whose ego is out of control and whose treatment of players is a disgrace and always has been. You go back and look at what he's done to players at other clubs, at Valencia, at Benfica, uh, Nias at Everton. Shameful, shameful stuff. And I'm sure there's one or two stories that have come out of Southampton as well that I've just missed. But Ronald Koeman just should not be in charge of Barcelona. And Barcelona should not be playing Luke de Jong in a Champions League game. Uh, Chelsea beat Zenit St. Petersburg 1-0. Pretty uninspiring game. Didn't think Chelsea really found their groove at all. Now, a front three of Mount, Lukaku and Zayic is just not going to get it done. Um, you've got to have pace there. You've got to have somebody with real pace that can threaten in behind, not just Lukaku. You've got to have even someone who makes runs that, you know, they're not going to get the ball. But they're going to make a run and drag a defender. Mount's not doing that. Mount's thing is not running in behind. Mount's thing is arriving late behind the ball. Zayic needs the ball or he can't function. They've got to get Pulisic or Werner in the team starting for that attack to really start to trigger and work. They looked strong in midfield. They looked strong at the back as they always do. They limited... um, Zenit, I think, seven shots, six shots in the game, only two on target. They'd 11 themselves, 67% of the ball. But they need two shots on target. And luckily for them, they happen to have one of the three best strikers in the world in Romelu Lukaku, who scored a great header, fourth goal since his return to Chelsea, off to a fantastic start. He is just, he's a magnificent centre forward. Absolutely magnificent centre forward. But you've got to give him more support. He saw the game against Liverpool. He was kind of left on an island up front by himself. And it was Mount and Havertz that day. You've got to get at least one of Pulisic 
and or Werner into the team. Or Hudson Adoy even. Now Hudson Adoy is a little bit different in that he's not the best runner off ball. But Werner will always make runs off ball. Pulisic will always make runs off ball. And both of them are no. Pulisic is a good finisher. Werner is hit and miss as a finisher. But he does have good goal scoring instincts and he ha- is a proven goal scorer over his career thus far. So I really think you could be using Werner in the same way that Inter Milan used Latura Martinez off Lukaku, making those type of runs in behind so that Lukaku can drop deep, take the ball in, feed it to somebody like a Havertz, a Mount, a Zayic, whoever, and they can then spot that run over the top. It keeps defenders guessing, it keeps them honest, means they can't just double up on Lukaku. It means they're always worried about the ball over, over the back as well. It also means that when Lukaku spins a defender and races into space, there's going to be someone in the box. We've seen it already a couple of times this season. He's gone down the channel, looked up, and there's no one in the box. Mason Mount is, you know, floundering to get into the box. Kai Havertz is 15 yards behind because they don't have the pace to do it. Both very good players, but maybe just not the best fit with Lukaku right now. That's the one thing Chelsea need to improve on, is they need to figure out that attacking three the defence, the system is the star and it's brilliant. The midfield is functional and it's high quality, regardless of whether it's Kovacic, Jorginho, Kante or Saul. Whichever two of those four is in there, that midfield is going to be very, very good. They've got quality in the wing-back positions. They've got quality up front, there's no doubt. But they need to get pace into that attack and need to get a little bit more... A little bit more versatility in the attack. Not just the same thing over and over again. Become a bit more flexible in there. Become a little less easy to read. And you'll get more from the attack in total. And I think you'll get more from Lukaku as well. Right now, Lukaku is saving the bacon a little bit. Nothing could save the bacon of Manchester United, though. Young Boys of Burn 2, Manchester United 1. This is one of the more embarrassing Champions League defeats that any Premier League team has suffered in recent memory. United went close to full strength. De Gea in goal, Juan Bissaka, Lindelof. Now, Varane obviously is the first choice starter, so that's one. Maguire, Shaw, Fred. Donny van de Beek when you know he wants McTominay, so two. But then Sancho, Bruno, Pogba, Cristiano. So nine of Ollie's first choice players. And the two who weren't, Lindelof and Donny van de Beek, cost a combined fee of about 80 million. Both of whom individually cost more than the entire Young Boys team. As did Juan Bissaka, as did Maguire, as did Shaw, as, as did Fred, as did Sancho, as did Bruno, and as did Paul Pogba. And if we adjust what they paid for De Gea for inflation, he did as well. Every outfield player, basically, bar Cristiano, cost more than the young boy starting eleven. De Gea, Maguire, Shaw, um, Sancho, Bruno, Pogba, Cristiano. Martial, who came off the bench, and Varane, who came off the bench, 
all cost, all earn more in a week than the entire Young Boys team earns in a week. Uh, also, Eric Bailly, Juan Mata, Anthony Martial, Varane and Matic off the bench all cost more than the entire Young Boys team. And Mata, Matic and like I said, Varane and Martial all earn more than they do in a week. So that will tell you the disparity between the teams. Now, Young Boys are managed by David Wagner, formerly of Huddersfield, did a great job getting them up, keeping them up, and then things went badly in the second year in the Premier League and he left. Went to Schalke, it started pretty well, and then turned into a disaster. Not his fault. That club is a bit of a mess. So it is what it is. But he's he's a good manager, not a great manager. And what we saw in this game was a manager tactically getting the better of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. And it wasn't really all that close. Like it, It's not like it was... It's not like United played well in this game. They went 1-0 up through Cristiano on 13 minutes. An incredible pass from Bruno Fernandes. A bad finish by Cristiano and a goalkeeping error. Put United 1-0 up. Aaron Wan-Bissaka was sent off on 35 for... I mean, I don't even know how to describe the tackle. He just sort of jumped in and caught the young boys player about midway between the ankle and the knee. It's a blatant red card. There's no doubt about it. And this has been coming with Wan-Bissaka because Wan-Bissaka's style of defending is... He's always in a panic. It's always last ditch. It's always desperation defending. It's jumping into tackles. And eventually that's going to catch up on him. And the more teams start to realise that he's not actually a very good defender. He's very good 1v1. And he's a very good recovery defender. But his positional sense is awful. He reads the game really poorly. He doesn't sweep across behind the centre-backs. And he shows poor judgement. And he's rash. And the more teams realise that, the more they'll begin to pick on him. As the more teams realise that he's quite poor on the ball, the more teams have let United funnel the ball to him, pressed in on everybody else, let him have the ball, and wait for him to give it back to us. And he has done that time and time again this season. Young boys equalised on 66. Gamalu with the goal. And on 95, Sebachu, put through by a Jesse Lingard pass to nobody in particular, rounds the goalkeeper and scores. And to be totally honest, United have no argument that they deserved anything from this game. Young boys had more possession. Young boys had eight corners to United's one. Young boys had 19 shots, United had two. Young boys had five on target. Again, United had two. United didn't have a shot in the game on target after the 24th minute. They had Cristiano shot on 13, and he had another shot on, I think it was, it was him, wasn't it, on 24. And that was it. Nothing more. When Wan-Bissaka got sent off, Ollie took off Jaden Sancho. 
and put on Diogo Delotto. Went 4-1-4-1 and played Pogba and Bruno as wingers. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Then he took off Cristiano. For 15 minutes, United had no striker on the pitch. Absolutely bizarre. Jesse Lingard running around like a headless chicken. A shameful managerial performance by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. A tactical disaster class. And not the first one this season. United were really good against Leeds. They were poor against Southampton. Could easily have lost. Armstrong had that great 1v1 chance. They were an abomination against Wolves and really should have lost. Combination of bad finishing, poor refereeing, really poor refereeing, not to give the clear penalty against Dan James and not to uh, at least book Paul Pogba, if not send him off, for the challenge on Ruben Neves that would eventually lead to the United goal, which should have been disallowed. And a couple of good saves from De Gea. They were awful in that game and should have been comfortably beaten. They beat Newcastle at the weekend 4-1. There were spells in that game when Newcastle was a better team and opened United up at will. United didn't play particularly well. Two goalkeeping errors from Freddie Woodman put them 2-1 up. A world-class strike from Bruno Fernandes made it 3 and then Newcastle just sort of gave up on the game. But for... 60-odd minutes in that game? Newcastle were probably the better team. Newcastle under Steve Bruce. And then this mess last night. And I've seen plenty of excuses made from Oli, for, for Ollie rather. I've seen him make some excuses as well. He was uh, quite, quit, quite critical of the uh, referee. Who the referee was 32 years of age, so Ollie decided to pick on him, um, whinging that he should have given a penalty to Ronaldo for what was clearly not a penalty offence early in the second half. He says sometimes you get it with young refs. Now, I don't really understand this, but if Ollie wants to talk with people not being qualified for the job, as Jonathan Liu said in the Guardian today. Well, there are certain areas in which Solskjaer can be challenged. When it comes to people being promoted into important roles in football with only the most negligible of experience, it's probably best to defer to him. This man is one of the most underqualified managers in the league. And when you factor the job he has, it's probably only Arteta who's more out of his depth. The job is far too big for Ollie. And he can smile all he wants. He knows it. He knows he's a fake. He knows he's a fraud. He knows he's in there because Alex Ferguson has him in there. And the reason Alex Ferguson wants him is the same reason he wanted Moyes. And it didn't quite work out with Moyes because he underestimated how strong a personality Moyes is. Ferguson wants somebody that he can dictate to. Ferguson wants to be the one calling the shots at United. And if you look at certain games, you will notice the fingerprints of Alex Ferguson all over them. But when you watch games where they really need in-game management, United fall apart. When things are simple, as in the opposition are going to dominate the ball, you need to bed in and counter-attack. United are great. Legitimately great. 
last season, the season before, they were brilliant at it. Bed in and counter-attack. They had pace in the wings, they had guys in the middle who could score goals. They could transition the ball really well. But in games where you're looking to unlock a defence, in games where teams are counter-attacking you and you need to make defensive adjustments, they're all at sea. In games where they need to make an attacking adjustment, a tactical change, they can't manage it. Because Ferguson can set the team up for Oli before the game, but he can't change things in-game because he sat up in the stands. And Cristiano Ronaldo can inspire lads to have to skip their dessert all he wants. But he can't overcome a manager like this. He just can't. And I saw Mark Goldbridge say, and I always take what Goldbridge says, obviously with a pinch of, sh- pinch of salt, but I did think he was right about this. Cristiano won't accept this. He There's going to have been a tantrum last night about how poor the tactical setup is. He may not have had it to Ollie or in front of his teammates, but he'll have had it to Ferguson. He'll have had it to the higher-ups. He won't be afraid of going over Ollie's head because he knows he has far more sway at Old Trafford than Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. He holds far more power there than Ollie does. He will demand an improvement in the standards. Now, let's be clear. It's not like he was good last night. He wasn't at all. He was very, very poor. And it's notable that all three goals he scored so far have come from goalkeeper errors. All three goalkeepers, or all three shots should never have ended in goals. The first one, obviously, Woodman spills the Greenwood shot. That's just a bad goalkeeping error. The other two, they're really weak finishes by Cristiano. He's made really poor contact with the ball. And goalkeepers have just let them go through their legs. He's been fortunate, and those fortunate moments have overshone the fact that he's played poorly in both games so far. Now, it is only two games, and look, when he has three goals, he's doing what he's there to do. He, all he's there to do is score goals. That's all, but this is all he's done for the last three years is score goals. He doesn't offer anything in the build-up. He just wants to run off the back shoulder, get lots of shots away in a game. And score goals. He doesn't care about anything else. I thought it was funny. I spoke yesterday about Gary Neville and how much of a fool he made of himself with his nonsensical arguments that Cristiano's the greatest player ever when very clearly he's not even been close to the greatest player of his generation. What I didn't point out was at the end of that debate between him and Carragher, Carragher basically made him agree that Harry Kane's a more all-round player, a better all-round player who gets the same amount of goals, but offers a lot more in the build-up play. And it's not like Cristiano's ever been great in the build-up play. Ever. Cristiano became a great player when he just started scoring goals for fun and ignored any sort of creative responsibility. It was the case at United, it was the case at Real, it's been the case at Juve for three years, it's the case at United now. They need to get more creativity behind them. Now, they had Sancho, Bruno and Pogba. You can't really ask for much more. And yet, they still only managed two shots. And, for, like, I know Wan-Bissaka got sent off. That's fine. But 
They got sent off in 35 minutes. This is young boys. They're not, they're not particularly good. They're a good Swiss team. But relatively speaking, they're not a good team compared to United. I've been over how much the players cost. United should have wiped the floor with them. United should have had five, six, seven shots in the first 35 minutes. If they're, you're playing that type of team, you've got that many high-end attackers on the pitch, and you're paying them those type of wages, you really, really should be expecting a lot more. It's going to be a tough group for United with Villarreal and Atalanta. I'd expect them to come through, but this was three points they really needed. Because I would expect Villarreal and Atalanta to both go there and win. Now, Villarreal could let you down on that because they're not particularly good away from home. But Atalanta will go there and win. They'll both beat them at home, as United should. And then that's going to come, come down to games between the others. And let's be real. United's Champions League record under Oli is atrocious. They've lost seven games under Oli in the Champions League. He's only been in charge of 11. And the four they won, well, they got penalties in all four of them. They didn't get penalties in the other seven. Oli is not a good manager. It just needs to be said. He's not a good manager. And he really should not be in charge of a club like Manchester United. And there's a great comment here at head of the town. Ollie is like a bus driver trying to drive a Formula One car. And that is, that exactly sums him up. 11 Champions League games, 7 defeats. That alone is a sackable offence. Um, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, some things on Twitter that's, that have annoyed me over the last few days, and we'll wrap up with the gossip. See you in a second. Right, welcome back. Now, a couple of things I've seen on Twitter in the last 48 hours or so that have really annoyed me. So the first one is an article by a journalist who's not a football writer, but he is a journalist, which is one of the more arrogant, condescending pieces I've ever seen written towards football fans. Um, I'm not going to name the journalist because he doesn't really deserve to have his name mentioned for good or bad reasons. He just wrote a piece um, from his perspective as a football fan. And the general notion behind it is that football fans, a certain portion of them, have become overly obsessed with transfers and don't focus enough on what happens on the pitch. Now, I'm going to push back on that because these are fans who want their team to win everything. Deluded or not, that's what they want. And I think that's absolutely a fair view to take, is that you should want your team 
to win every competition every year. That's, you know, football is about winning. That's what it's about. It's about winning. It's not about the taking part. It's not about getting a participation ribbon. The, the great winners of the game, your Keens, your Sunesses, even Sergio Ramos, they wouldn't be as happy if they got participation rib uh, ribbons. They're happy because they won loads of stuff. Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't continue to play because he wants to take part. He takes part because he wants to win. So the idea that you should just be happy when your team wins one trophy or two trophies, um, you know, when they win a league after 30 years as Liverpool did and you shouldn't demand more, is bizarre. A club like Liverpool, the fans should demand that the team competes every year. Anything below that is unacceptable. Same for Manchester United. I believe the same would go for Arsenal. The same should go for Chelsea and City now as they've bought their way into the su success. But their fans will not accept anything less than success at this point, nor should they. So I understand that there are people out there who you know, are more interested in the journey and, and are quite happy when their team are just good and not great. I saw someone say, how as a Liverpool fan could you not love the 17-18 season? But Liverpool didn't win anything in the 17-18 season. So I would ask you how you could, lo how you could love that. How can you love failure? Anything below losing is failure. People like to quote Bill Shankly, and yet they ignore the things that Shankly actually said in order to make up quotes he didn't say. People will remember the quote that went around, if you can support us when we draw or lose, don't support us when we win. He never said that. That was nonsense. Bill Shankly's the man that said football is more important than life or death. Bill Shankly's the man that said when you're second, you're nowhere. So this idea that Bill Shankly believes in the nonsense you're peddling just isn't true. In the same way that Bill Shankly said, you buy players, anyone who thinks they make players is fooling themselves. But Bill Shankly said that. So Bill Shankly had a thing about transfers as well. And what's extra funny about this whole situation, aside from the condescending snide tone of the article, which is basically telling a group of people, I'm a better fan than you. You should be more like me. What's really funny is seeing a parade of other journalists who do cover football trot out and say, this is brilliant. I see these type of replies all the time. The media coming down on football fans over an obsession with transfers when the media are the ones who created the obsession with transfers in order to sell newspapers and get people watching their unbelievably bad programming. Sky Sports, Jim White, reporters at every ground. Sky Sports this summer, regular transfer shows with two absolute spoofers who haven't a breeze telling people lies. The Guardian, one of the institutions of English media, pandering to a spoofer from Italy with about as much connection to English football as he does to the moon. Every single journalist who covers the game for a red top newspaper 
deals in transfer speculation. There are rumour and gossip pages in certain papers. There's at least a section dedicated to them. The BBC have a whole page. I get 10 minutes a day out of it. The media created fans' obsessions with transfers. And now they want to slap back at fans for being obsessed with transfers. Now much of this is because many journalists, and I can think of a few in particular who cover a certain club in Merseyside, who have gotten things so wrong so often over the last few years. And fans have finally began to hold journalists accountable. And this is where the real thing comes in, is that for years, journalists would make up absolute lies linking Club A to Player B, and it would not happen. Player A would end up at Club B, or Player, player B would end up at Club A, Club A would end up buying Player C. Things that would not be reported, journalists would not have any insight. And when they did have insight or they would claim insight, it would oftentimes prove to be nonsense. I remember somebody on social media went through five years of the work, the reporting of a Daily Mirror journalist who peddled transfer information and found over 400 stories that he had mentioned either long form or in passing in another article, linking player A to a different club. About three of them turned out to be real, where the player made the move. Less than 10% ever involved a bid being made. This guy was just floating by, getting his clicks, filling his column inches. And loads of others do it. Now, this is not necessarily the journalist's fault because we live in a clickbait culture and journalists are pressured to create clickbait content. I'll give you an example of the Liverpool Echo, which at one point was an institution of news and views in the city of Liverpool. When the likes of Tony Barrett was the chief writer there, it was an outstanding newspaper to get Liverpool-related information. Even when Chris Bascombe was there, before Barrett, he was outstanding at the time. Not really through the fault of the journalists who followed them, but through the fault of the ownership group, which at first was Trinity Mirror and now has reached PLC. They have become clickbaity. And the journalists are forced to write nonsense. And either... Create controversy with like bad player ratings and such or carry agendas against certain players to get people criticizing or, you know, promote propaganda towards mediocre players to rile people up or play the simpletons and the sheep. The Liverpool Echo and, and every other publication under Reach PLC, I should point out, they're all clickbait because they've all got this online presence. They don't have a paywall. So they're just looking for ad revenue, ad revenue, ad revenue, ad revenue. How do we drive ad revenue? Transfer rumors. How do we know this work? Because look at the amount of people that spent years watching Jim White coming to the building. Jim White is in the building. 
in his yellow tie to then talk absolute bobbins for about five hours. Five million people follow Romano on Twitter. Five million people. The guy's a complete spoofer. But he is spoofed enough that he now does have some connections with certain clubs because his lies have actually given him legitimacy because of the culture created around transfer information by the media. So for journalists to be whinging and moaning because somebody called you out, a certain journalist for the Liverpool Echo came out last summer and denied Thiago, denied Thiago, said it was a transfer rooted in fiction. I asked again today and was told in no uncertain circumstances it's not happening. Three days later, Thiago Alcantara was a Liverpool player. And when people called him out on it, he just blocked them all. They weren't being abusive. They were merely sending him his own screenshots. He's one of the one who said that that article condemning the fans and the culture around transfers is a great thing to read. He's one of them. Because he didn't like being called out. The media created the frenzy around transfers to sell ads, to bring eyeballs, and to get themselves some notice and some notoriety. And when fans start to slap back against that and call it out and say, well, what about all these rumours you created? Well, journalists don't like it at all. It bothers me. You created it. Don't dump on it. Fix it. Be more transparent. Hold your hands up when you get things wrong. And flat out stop lying. Because everybody can get something wrong. Transfers are a fluid situation. And if a transfer goes sideways, but it was a real thing, come out and tell us why. Because fans deserve to know. And fans want to know. And fans will read it. You'll get your clicks. And you know what else they'll do? They'll applaud you for holding your hands up. They'll thank you for the story. And they'll read your next piece. But if you lie to them, or you ignore things that clearly happened because it doesn't suit your own agenda, then they'll come looking for you. Simple as that. And on social media, in the modern internet world we live in, everything lasts forever. You can't take it back. Once it's out there, it's out there, and people will have receipts. And then you just have to own it. Simple as that. Speaking of journalists who are going to need to own things, uh, Luke Edwards is a journalist for The Telegraph, and he's a very, very good writer. He's one of my favorite writers in the British media. And I've said before, I think The Telegraph, after The Athletic, you just have a sheer numbers advantage. In terms of the printed press, The Telegraph's football writing staff is head and shoulders above everybody else. It is absolutely outstanding. And he is one of the very best at what he does. But he went on the radio yesterday. Oh, no, sorry, it was a Football Daily podcast. Um, to defend Steve Bruce, basically. And he basically worked his way around into, 
Well, Steve Bruce has done a better job at Newcastle than Graham Potter, so what are you complaining about? And he tried to make a number of arguments that, well, Brighton have a much better team than Newcastle. That's not true, for starters. But let's have a look at this. So his argument was, Graham Potter at Brighton, 90 games played, 28.9% win percentage. Steve Bruce, 93 games played, 30.1. 30. There's a proper Irish 30 for you. 30.1% win ratio. So that's fine. And it is accurate. That is true. Those are undeniable facts. Steve Bruce has a better winning percentage than Graham Potter by 1.2% over a 90-game period of time. Two and a little bit seasons. But let's look a little bit deeper into this, because it's not just that simple. Let's look at performance indicators, things like XG and XG against. If Brighton, forget overperforming their XG, if they even just underperform their XG by a little bit, Brighton will be a top half team. Their XG against is that of a top half team. So Brighton perform like a top half team. Newcastle perform like a bottom four team in both metrics. Then we factor in style of, of play. Newcastle under Steve Bruce play a very risk averse, defensive minded, negative style of play and rely on the individual brilliance of one or two players to score or create a chance. Brighton play an adventurous, open, attacking style of play. Brighton's way of playing is far more difficult to pull off in the Premier League than Newcastle's, which is why we saw for many, many years teams would come up into the Premier League and be ultra-defensive. And largely they would find themselves in the mid-table with that approach. The Sam Allardyce teams, the Roy Hodgson teams, the Tony Pulis teams, Neil Warnock's teams. The dinosaur era of manager played that way. You can include Sean Dyche. I think he's far from a dinosaur. But his style of play isn't always attractive on the eye. I think he plays better stuff than they do. Don't think he has the resources that any of the managers I've mentioned have been given over time. I think he makes the best of what he can do. But I think that at times you can watch Burnley. They do play good football. Um, I thought they played good football against Everton for 60 minutes, as an example. Whereas with Newcastle, yeah, they played some decent stuff against United on the counter-attack. But you never see Newcastle in any real game be the team that has the most possession. They can be at home against a bad team and they'll let them have the ball. Newcastle don't want to have the ball. So Bruce has taken a more risk-averse, easier path to Premier League survival. Because that's what Steve Bruce cares about. He doesn't care about anything else other than survival. Steve Bruce's mandate, either from the top or from himself, is 
keep Newcastle in the division. And that is a very easy thing to do. Keep them in the division. Don't try and do anything else. I've said this before. Steve Bruce could have his way. He'd get 38 nil-nil draws across the course of a season. And that'd be it. What Graham Potter is trying to do is build something at Brighton to make them a top-half team. And eventually, a team that can challenge to get into Europe. And that's much more difficult to do. It's much more difficult to do when you play the way they play. It's much more difficult to play when you've got the budget that they've got, when you're the size of the club that you have. But that's what he's doing. So, both of these men took their current jobs in the summer of 2019. So for two seasons before that, both clubs, Brighton and Newcastle, were in the Premier League. Both of them were promoted at the end of the 16-17 season from the Championship. Newcastle had finished first, Brighton had finished second under Rafa Benitez and Chris Hewton, respectively. Brighton came up into the Premier League and they finished 15th their first year and 17th the second year, playing a style of football very, very similar to Steve Bruce's Newcastle right now. Newcastle under Rafa finished 10th and then 13th. So top half finish and then 13th. They spent a lot of money under Rafa, it must be said. Now, Brighton likewise spent quite a bit of money under under Hewton, but a lot of those signings went badly, whereas a lot of Rafa's kind of worked out. Rafa's style is... A base defensive style of football. But he can be quite adventurous at times. And he does want the ball at times. He realises there's games where you don't want the ball. You want to let the opposition have it. Bed in. Try and hit them on the counter-attack. If you if you don't succeed in the counter-attack, worst case scenario, you get your nil-nil you move on. Basically what Steve Bruce does in every game. So Rafa had already ingrained that defensive style of football into Newcastle. Newcastle's defenders, when Steve Bruce took them over, were all well coached in how to play this way. So what Bruce has done is he's taken Benitez's team and then taken them backwards. Defensively, he's taken them backwards in that they now sit 10 yards deeper. Stylistically, he's taken them backwards in that they now take less risks and they're a lot less easy to watch. And he's taken them backwards With, with glee, with gusto. Now, his first season he finished 13th. His second season he finished 12th. Some people tried to make the argument he's done better than Rafa, but he didn't because Rafa got 10th and 13th and he got 13th and 12th. So Rafa did better in his two years than Steve Bruce did in his two years. But that's neither here nor there. Graham Potter has completely changed the style of football at Brighton. There is very little left in how Brighton play from when Potter took over. They're a far more progressive team. They're a far more ambitious team. They play a much higher defensive line. They build from the back far more often. They create far more chances. There's nothing comparable about this Brighton team and the the Chris Hewton Brighton team. Graham Potter has changed everything. And he has done that 
with a much lower net spend than Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce's net spend is about 65 million. Potter's is about 40. You look at players at Newcastle who've improved under Steve Bruce. It's a short list. I would say St. Maximum has improved, but I do think you can put that down to natural progression more than anything else. Newcastle's first season in the league, John Joe Shel- under Bruce, John Joe Shelby was their top scorer with six goals. Last season, Callum Wilson scored 12. They bought him in. Shelby, in 2017-18, should have made the England squad for the World Cup. He has regressed quite a bit. And if we go through the Newcastle squad, Dubravka is no better now than he was when Bruce took over. Woodman has improved, but that's because of loan spells. Kieran Clark has regressed. Dummett has regressed. Shar has regressed. Jamal Lachelles has regressed. Fernandez has regressed. And Mankio has regressed. Emil Kraft and Jamal Lewis have both arrived. Kraft might have arrived under Benitez, but it's, it's irrelevant either way. But both of them have regressed from where they were when they arrived. And Lewis did obviously arrive under Bruce. Neither of them are as good right now as they were when they arrived. They're both very good fullbacks. Bruce wants to play wingbacks, and it's a little bit uncomfortable for both of them. Matty Longstaff has gone backwards. Shelby has gone backwards. Richie has gone backwards. Hayden's about the same. He's had some injuries. Uh, Jeff Hendrick and Ryan Fraser have both arrived. Neither have been as good for Newcastle as they were at the previous clubs. Jacob Murphy, he has flashes, but he's still the same inconsistent and proven player he was under Benitez. Almiron has gone backwards. Willock went forwards, but whether that was just getting game time or not, we'll see this season. Sean Longstaff has regressed massively. Under Rafa, United were willing to pay $40 million to bring him to Manchester. Under Steve Bruce, he can barely get a game. Jolington arrived the summer Bruce took over. He was a Benitez signing. He has regressed at a staggering rate. Callum Wilson's the same player he was at Bournemouth. And Dwight Gale, I would say, has regressed. Now, not all of the regressions are down to Steve Bruce. Some of that is just down to age. Some of it's down to injury. But a lot of it is down to playing style. The only player I think who's better now than he was two years ago is Alan St. Maximum. And I think a big reason for that is he's now 24 and he was 22 when he arrived. I think he's just gotten better with age. I think it's he's starting to get towards the peak of his career, which will begin at like 25. So I think it's natural progression with him. You take a look at the Brighton squad under Graham Potter. Tariq Lamptey, I would put down to natural progression. There's no question he has been a shining light for Brighton when he's been on the pitch. Ben White is gone now, obviously, but Ben White took an enormous step forward under Graham Potter and became a £50 million player. Now, Brighton were asking £40 the year before, and nobody was willing to pay it. The best offer they got, I think, was 25 from Leeds. One season under Potter, £50 from Arsenal. Done. Robert Sanchez has improved. I still don't think he's very good, but he has improved. Adam Webster has improved immeasurably in the two years he has been there. Lewis Dunk has improved in the two years he spent under Potter. Aaron Connolly has gone backwards. Yves Basuma has improved. Neil Mope has improved. McAllister's kind of plateaued down to lack of playing time, but it is what it is. Leandro Trossard, massive improvement. Pascal Grouse, I think, has improved. 
Jakob Moda hasn't played enough. Mwepu hasn't played enough. Alzetti's been injured. Welbeck and Lalana are regressing. That's down to their age and injuries more than anything. Neither of them are very good players anymore. They were decent at their prime, but nothing special. Solly March has improved. Jason Steele is a third-choice keeper at the best of times. Shane Duffy looks the best this season that he has since his first season in the Premier League. So he was out of the picture last year uh, under under Potter. But he's come back in and he's he's taking the most of his opportunity. I wouldn't say he's improved or anything. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, Hayden Roberts is improving. But again, it's natural progression. He's a young kid getting better. Same with Taylor Richards. Dan Byrne is about the same as he was. Joel Veltman's about the same as he was. You know, through the rest of the squad, it's all young players. They're all just progressing as they age. It's, it's not them. But there's a lot more players who've improved under Potter than those that have improved under Steve Bruce. A lot more. And when you look at the players they've signed, I think it's quite interesting to see, you know, Jolington wasn't a Bruce signing, but under Bruce, he has flopped. St. Maximum has been a success. Carroll was a flop. Emil Kraft did sign under Bruce. So Bruce signed him and won't play him, or won't play him properly as a fullback. So I think that's got to be classed as a flop. They brought in Jetro Williams on loan. Went okay. Went okay. Uh, Bentaleb, flop on loan. Lazaro, flop on loan. And Danny Rose, it went okay. I I think it went okay is about the the fairest thing to say. Um, Jeff Hendrick, it's it's done okay. It's gone okay. It hasn't been great. Ryan Fraser, the same thing. Callum Wilson's done well. He's done well. Has he gotten better? No, but he's done well. Uh, Jamal Lewis. At the moment, it's not going well. Uh, Joe Willock did very well on loan. And this summer, they brought in just Joe Willock and then that young Santiago Munez, who I think is a character from the goal movies. But we'll see how Joe Willock does permanently. So what have we got? Two success stories under Bruce in the transfer market? Three. Three, if we're being fair. Callum Wilson, Willock on loan. We'll see if he does permanently. And St. Maximum. That's that's a little bit concerning because it's quite a few players brought in and quite a few that haven't worked out thus far. Whereas you look at Brighton, Trussard, success. Webster, success. I think Mopay's been a success. Lamptey's been a success. Aaron Moy's an, an interesting one. He came in on loan, did really well. They made it permanent. And then I think he got homesick and wanted to leave. Um... But he was playing quite well for them. He's a good player. He's gone to China. Uh, he had a four million pound release clause in his contract. So it's a strange one. I still find it strange that he left. But I don't think it was down to any falling out with Potter. I wouldn't class it as a failure for sure. Um, so in that first summer's transfer window, I think pretty much everything was a success. Last year. They brought in Jensen Weir as a young player. Lalana hasn't really worked, but he keeps getting in the team. Veltman, a push at best. Uh, Andy Zakiri, we don't know yet. Carbonic and Motor, again, we don't know yet. Moses Caseo, we don't know yet. These are all young players brought in for the future. But you would back all of them and Jensen Weir to improve under Graham Potter, to become part of something 
for Brighton's future. Uh, the only real players they brought in for now, Welbeck, Lalana, and Veltman. A push. None of them have been a failure, but a push. They're just not very good players anymore. Veltman's the best of the three, but they're not very good players anymore. We'll see what happens with the likes of Mwepu and Cucurella. Uh, they brought in Abdelaziz this summer as well, but he's gone on loan to Stoke. The other two will play a part this year. We'll see how they go, but Potter's just done a lot better in the transfer market. So you've got change the style massively. Change the direction of the club. Made them good to watch. Developing young players. Success in the transfer market. Lower net spend. Took over a worse squad from a worse spot. I don't understand any real argument to be made that Steve Bruce is working, you know, has done a better job. And the other argument that Luke made was that, well, Brighton have a better team. How many Newcastle players would get in the, the Brighton team? Okay, well, Martin Dubravka would get in the Brighton team. Freddie Woodman's had a terrible start to the season, but he's still a better keeper than Robert Sanchez. He would get in the team. Uh, Jamal Lachelles would get in the team. Up until they bought Cucurella, Jamal Lewis would have gotten the team. Any of John Joe Shelby, Isaac Hayden, Sean Longstaff or Joe Willock getting the Brighton team ahead of Adam Lalana. St. Maximum gets in the team. Almiron gets in the team. Callum Wilson gets in the team. There's quite a lot of players there that get in the, get in the Brighton team. There just is. That's just how it is. They get in the Brighton team because they're all good players. Like Lamptey and Cuccarelli, yeah, they'd work for Newcastle as wingbacks for sure. Uh, you'd take Webster, you'd take Dunk. You'd take Basuma. You'd take Trossard. I think it's about even. I really do. I think it's about even. But when you look at the depth involved, I think Newcastle have more depth options. I don't think this Newcastle team is awful the way some people make it out to be. I think if you looked at a starting 11 of Dubravka in goal, Kraft at right back, Lewis at left back, Lachelle's plus one at centre back, that'd be a strong defence. You get a good centre back in like next to Jamal Lachelle's, it's a strong defence. Uh, I'd be happy enough with a midfield pairing of Shelby and Hayden. I think they hold their own against most. You'd go Hayden and Longstaff either. I think they hold their own against most Premier League teams. Joe Willock as your 10. Almiron off the right. St. Maximum off the left. Callum Wilson up front. That's not a good team. That's one centre-back away from being a good team. And Fabian Scherer is a decent centre-back. So you can, you can put him in for now. That's not a bad team at all. That's not a relegation contender. That's not a team that needs to play a negative style of football either. You got both full-backs are comfortable on the ball. One of them more so than other in Lewis. But Lewis is a full-back who's good going forward. He's not a wing-back. You've got Longstaff or Shelby in midfield, both very good passes at the ball, very comfortable. Almiron's very creative. St. Maximum always wants the ball. Willock's your off-ball runner. You've got that number nine who can hold the ball up, who can finish, can bring Willock into the game. I thought last year when we saw Willock and Wilson play together, they were very, very good. That's a good team. These aren't some scrubs that Bruce is just 
draining every last morsel out of to inch them over the line. This is a good team. I think that's one centre-back away from being a top-half calibre team. You'd need a bit more depth, obviously. But it's not a bad team at all. Not by any stretch of the imagination. So this idea that Steve Bruce is working miracles or is outperforming Graham Potter, he's doing the bare minimum. And his team are performing like it. Graham Potter has not had tremendous backing at Brighton. Got no backing last summer. Minimal backing this summer. Most of their outcomings came from... Actually, they made a net profit this summer. And I would bet they made a net profit last summer as well. Yeah, Newcastle are... They made a substantial profit last summer. Brighton made a substantial profit last summer. So two summers in a row, Brighton and Hove Albion have made a profit. This summer, largely down to Ben White. Last summer, largely down to just not buying anybody. We look at the first season that he was in charge. That was the summer they spent some money. Trussard, Webster, Mopay. You're probably talking 65 million. 55 million. About 55 million in spending that summer. Uh, they probably brought in 5 to 10 million. So there's where his big outgoing is that first summer. If in actuality I was wrong when I said it was around 40 million net spend, it's probably closer to 30 million net spend in his three years. Whereas Bruce has had better back. And Potter's also had a couple of key players sold. You know? Like a Ben White. So the idea that Steve Bruce is outperforming Graham Potter is, is a nonsense. Graham Potter has completely changed Brighton Football Club. Stylistically, mentality-wise, approach, ambition. He's developing young players. They're good to watch. None of that is true of Steve Bruce. And I wish journalists wouldn't try and make straw man arguments like the one Luke Edwards makes. Because Luke Edwards is better than that and he's capable of far better. But to simply look at it as, as, as oh, well, you know, he's got a higher win percentage. Really? Really? That's your argument? Doesn't sit well with me. Really doesn't sit well with me. Look at their performance numbers. If Graham Potter had a number, if Graham Potter had Callum Wilson, and I'm not asking for a, a top class striker, Callum Wilson, just a good striker, Brighton would have been a top half team last season. Simple as that, they would have been. The under, underlying numbers prove it. We will finish up with the gossip today. Uh, England striker Harry Kane could sign a new deal with Tottenham if a release clause is inserted into his contract. The 28-year-old previously believed he had a gentleman's agreement. I love that phrase. Gentleman's agreement. Such nonsense. Doesn't exist in football. Uh, with Daniel Levy to leave this summer when Man City tried to sign him. That's from Eurosport. Um, so I, I don't know how much credence to put into it. Paris Saint-Germain sporting director Leonardo says he does not see Kylian Mbappe leaving the club at the end of the season, even though he's yet to agree a contract extension for his contract, which expires in the summer. Well, Leonardo is... 
one of the worst sporting directors in world football. How he continues to get employment, I don't know. How PSG continue to put up with him, I don't know. He's driven out multiple managers. He's signed lots of bad players. And all things considered, he's just pretty awful at his job. Juventus are considering a move for Gabriel Jesus, but may face competition from Bayern Munich if Robert Lewandowski decides to move on. I really don't think either club are going to be batting down the door for Gabriel Jesus, unless he turns things around this season and can re-establish himself as a number nine and not being played as an inside forward. Uh, I think he's probably staying at City. Napoli present, president uh, Ariello De Laurentiis says he is working on a plan for a pan-European league worth 8.5 million, which will have qualification based on merit, unlike the plans for the European Super League. Um, this this could be interesting. De Laurentiis is, is mental, but this could be interesting. And Look, there was a lot of things about the Super League that were really, really good. They got shouted down because Gary Neville got people all riled up uh, because, you know, self-serving the Gary Neville way. Um, we'll wait and see what De Laurentiis puts forward. Yuri Thielemann says he's keeping his options open as he open as he continues to negotiate a new deal with Leicester. He has been linked with Liverpool, Manchester United, Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, he's waiting to see if an offer comes in. It's, it's what he's doing. Tottenham and Atletico Madrid both had bids of at least €90 million Euros rejected by Inter Milan with Arsenal also been not back. See, this is what I mean about journalists telling lies. Tottenham's offer was accepted. They were happy to sell him because they're in a mess financially. He made the decision not to go to Tottenham. He also made the decision not to go to Arsenal because Arsenal also had a bid accepted. Now, I don't know about Atletico Madrid. I do know that the bids weren't €90 million because that was information that was made public during the summer by real journalists, not people that work for Gazzetta dello Sport, which is the nonsensical Italian newspaper, not to be confused with the one. There's a similar name that's actually quite good. Um... Arsenal forward Bakayo Saka has been approached by a number of clubs, but the 20-year-old is considered untouchable. So this is from the spoofer with the catchphrase on his on his podcast, which he charges people, I think, to listen to, and it's garbage from what I've heard. But um, this is one of his things, one of his tells when he's making things up. He refers to players as untouchable, and it often turns out that they're not. Um Bayer Leverkusen's Florian Wirtz has attracted the attention of a number of unnamed Premier League clubs as well as Bayern Munich. That kid is really, really special. Really, really special. So, yeah, keep an eye on him. He'd be a great signing for pretty much anybody. Chelsea's chances of signing Jules Koundé will depend on whether or not Antonio Rudiger's contract situation is resolved. That sounds like nonsense. Um... Netherlands midfielder Ginny Wijnaldum says he expressed the desire to stay at Liverpool but eventually left on a free transfer from Paris Saint-Germain because he was made to feel unwanted. Yeah, because Captain Pointerson had to get his new contract and, you know, Propaganderson media made sure that he was seen as more important than the more important, better, more versatile, 
more reliable midfielder that actually ended up leaving. Um, Arsenal have not abandoned hope of signing Leon's midfielder, Hassam Auer, and will target him next summer. Uh, they could have signed him this past summer. They signed Odegaard instead. You cannot fit Odegaard, Auer, and Emile Smith-Rowe in the same team. You just can't. There's just no way to do it and not get beaten 5-0 every time you go out in the pitch. They've also got this young kid. Is it Charlie Patino? Is that his name? I think that's his name. He is really special. And I don't think they're going to sign any more central midfield creative types because they don't want to block his path. Um, Tottenham are again expected to be among the suitors keen to sign Nahati Nandez, who is also wanted by Inter Milan, Napoli, Roma and Fiorentina when the transfer window opens in January. He's a tremendously good ball winner. He's a lunatic and he'd be a lot of fun to see in the Premier League. He's, I would say he's a modern day Reno Gattuso. I think that's probably the, the best comp I could make from. He can also play right back because he's got a bit of versatility about him. Uh, Barcelona remain very interested in Christian Romero. Go away. Juventus and AC Milan could make a move for Isco. They won't. Everton are chasing Aberdeen defender Calvin Ramsey. The Toffees sent a scout to watch the 18-year-old play against Mother, uh, Motherwell at the weekend. I don't actually know anything about Calvin Ramsey, I must say. Um, just turned 18 this past summer. Let's have a quick gander. Plays right back. Looks to be quite a similar profile to Patterson at Rangers, who they've also got interest in. Um, can play right back, has also played right midfield in the senior team. Eight appearances for Aberdeen, four last season. Oh, that's in the league. He's actually made 17 appearances in total. Ten appearances already this season. So, yeah, fair play. Uh, looks to be doing well from himself into the Scottish under-21 team already. Could be one to keep an eye on then. Calvin Ramsey um, of Aberdeen. Watford are poised to sign 18-year-old free agent Jamil Kukukwa, who left Leeds United in the summer. Uh, Watford just sign all the players. That's what they do. Uh, we will leave it there for today. Thank you, as always, to, for listening. Tonight we have Champions League action. Liverpool and Man City both in action. So we will talk about them tomorrow. And obviously, tomorrow is Listener's Questions Day. So any questions you have, tweet them to the EPL Index Twitter account or the Anfield Index Twitter account. Or just tag Guy. Actually, it might be easier just to send them to at Guy Drinkle. Uh, so if you've got questions, send them to at Guy Drinkle. And, sorry, Guy. And uh, you can put them in the Anfield Index Discord channel if you're on there either. And that's it. Thanks to Guy. Thanks to you. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.